Today is the final message in our series, our Summer in the Psalms series, which is appropriate because this morning does not feel like summer at all. Um, right? uh, we've had some amazing, amazing messages, um, and we usually start out with the reading, so want to do things a little differently today. I've asked some people to help me with the reading of Psalm 23. So I've got some people, some volunteers who are going to come right now. They're going to come and they're going to help me with the reading of Psalm 23. Those of you who are helping, you know who you are. And Psalm 23 begins with, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Me das nuevas fuerzas y me guías por el camino. Porque así eres tú. Cuando yo marcho de la valle de l'ombre de la muerte, yo no creo que mal cartier está con mí. Mundia ni quiera gome pa maso pa adanea pa adaneanga. Manizo zamuto wanga de mafuta. Chikojanga chisefukira. La tua baquete y la tua verga me consolan. Per certo, io abiterò nella casa del Signore lunghi giorni. Amen. Can we give them a hand? This is actually the tenth sermon in this series, and Pastor Steve has done an amazing job, as always, at guiding us through this uh, through this series. He started out by bringing forth a message just titled, The Lord is My Shepherd. Uh, the following week, Pastor Henry brought an amazing message, The Lord is My Peace. Pastor Steve then spoke to us about, He restores my soul, followed by, He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Pastor Steve preached a powerful message titled, Walk Through the Valley. And he prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. We had amazing times here at the altar when he spoke about you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. And last week, he brought a powerful message. Goodness and mercy stalk me, he preached last week. Goodness and mercy stalk me. Now, the definition of stalking, for those of you who don't know, is when two people go out for a romantic walk in the park but only one of them knows about it. That's, that's stalking. All right? Now, the 23rd Psalm is one of the best-known passages of Scripture. Um, it's especially used during funerals. And indeed, I've had the honor and the privilege to stand with many Bethlehem families over the years at funerals, presiding over a funeral. And if you've ever been to a funeral that I preside over, you've heard me quote Psalm 23. Uh, this scripture is actually so closely associated with funerals that on one occasion, when a pastor went to the hospital to pray for someone who was sick, he opened up the scripture and started reading Psalm 23, and the guy said, no, pastor, please, I don't want you rehearsing. <laughs> but the truth is, that Psalm 23 is a scripture that brings comfort to us in times of trials and struggle. But it's much more than that. The 23rd Psalm is a literary masterpiece filled with beautiful imagery that all of us can relate to. This literary masterpiece does not disappoint. It leads the reader to experience so much emotion right up until the climax. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And why is that the climax? Why does... The author go from the Lord is my shepherd to I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I mean, he restores my soul might be just as good at a climax or 
I will fear no evil. That might be even better, right? Or maybe my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Surely that would be a good ending. So what is it about the house of the Lord which captivates David so much? Why is it that in the book of Psalms that are mostly written by David, David talks about the house of the Lord nine times? Why is the house of the Lord so special to him? There are so many other types of houses, right? There's the white house. There's a bathhouse. There's a slaughterhouse. There's a fun house. For my Yankee fans, there's a house that Ruth built. There's a publisher's clearing house. You may have already won a million dollars. And one of my personal favorites, the International House of Pancakes. <laughs> but there was something about the house of the Lord which captivated David. David writes in Psalms 122, verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now, when I'm studying and preparing for a sermon, I like to research the words in their original language to get the full context. And if you've ever heard me speak, you know that I tend to do that. And so I researched this word glad. In the Hebrew, it's samak, which means to be glad exceedingly, to arrogantly rejoice, to arrogantly rejoice. So that's like the little kid who gets picked up from school early and on his way out of the classroom, he goes like this. <laughs> He's arrogantly rejoicing. And that's what David is talking about. He's arrogantly rejoicing. Guess where I get to go today? I get to go to the house of the Lord. David was passionate about the house of the Lord. And his passion actually maybe even bordered on obsession. He writes in Psalm 27, 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing I ask of the Lord. One thing. So I looked up that word one in Hebrew. Do you know what it means? It means one. Pay attention. Come on, folks. It means one. One thing. But the word ask, the Hebrew is sha'al, which means to beg, to ask for a favor. So it's not asking a question. It's asking for a favor. And that word seek in Hebrew is bakash, which is to seek out, to request, and to require. This is a requirement. It's a non-negotiable for me, like breathing. And then to behold or to gaze, that Hebrew is kazah, which is to see or to perceive with intelligence or by experience. And so David, the king of Israel, was begging God. He was asking for a favor. Please, let me see you. Let me experience your presence. And David wasn't going to take no for an answer. And it was probably David's great passion for the house of the Lord, which has led to a great fundamental shift in the understanding of what the house of the Lord actually is. And spoiler alert, it's not about the building. God himself declares his intent in Exodus chapter 25, in verse 8. God says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. See, the purpose of the house of the Lord is so that God may dwell with his people. God wants his people. God has always wanted his people. He wants you and I to be connected to his presence. You might ask, Pastor, how can you say it's not about the building when God himself is asking them to build a sanctuary? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. See, God's original design was very detailed. And God's original design was very intricate. 
But God's original design was not a fixed site building. It was a portable tabernacle made up of tents so that wherever God's people went, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of battles, even through the hottest deserts, they were accompanied by God's presence. That's been God's goal all along. That no matter what you go through, no matter where you go through it, no matter how hard it is, His presence would accompany you through it. Somebody can say amen to that. If you don't start saying amen, I'm going to start saying amen. Then it's just going to be awkward. But isn't God everywhere anyway? Why does he need a sanctuary? And, and that's another good question. Again, I'm glad you asked. And the answer is that God doesn't need a sanctuary. We need a sanctuary. Because our faith is so weak that we need a fixed point of reference to know that God is with us. And so the use of the tabernacle was instituted. And that was the origin of the house of the Lord. It was a place where people expressed their gratitude for the Lord's provision by bringing their first fruits and paying their vows. But it was much more than that. It was the place where once a year the high priest would go and sacrifice an unblemished lamb for the sins of the people. Because thousands of years before the birth of Jesus Christ, the house of the Lord foreshadowed what Jesus would do for us, being both our high priest and the perfect lamb that takes away the sin of the world. The house of the Lord meant that God's presence was with the people of Israel. And this was fulfilled for all of us when Jesus Christ came down from heaven and dwelt among men. So how did David contribute to a fundamental shift in the understanding of what the house of the Lord is? See, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I'm going to paraphrase this. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is so passionate about the house of the Lord. He's so in love with God. He wakes up one day and he's feeling just gratitude. And he goes to the prophet and he declares, how can I live in a house of cedar while the ark of God is in a tent? And the ark of God, the ark of the covenant, was an ornamented chest which contained, among other things, the Ten Commandments. And it represented, it symbolized the power and the authority of God. And so David was saying, in other words, how can I, the king of Israel, live in a palace while the house of the Lord, who is the king of kings, is intense. Now listen, David's heart was in the right place, but he was failing to understand that God's purpose was to demonstrate to the people that their God was being intentional about dwelling with them. God wanted the people to see that he was available to them. David wanted people to see a structure which was worthy of the king of kings. But God responds. God tells the prophet in response to David's question, I never asked for a grand structure from my people. I never asked for it. But because my servant David wants to honor me in that way, I'm going to establish his house. I'm going to establish the house of David. And I'm going to give him a son. And I'm going to allow his son to build me a house. Now David was so pleased with the thought that God would allow his heir to build a house that David became obsessed with the project. And David did everything himself except physically build the house with his own two hands. David assembled the materials. David assembled the craftsmen. David assembled the Levites. David assembled the priests. David assembled the money. David made all the plans. And in so doing, David changed the scope of what God had given consent for. David changed the scope of what God was permitting. 
God had said, your son will build me a house. But in 1 Chronicles 29, the scripture says, And David the king said to the assembly, Solomon my son, Solomon my son whom God alone, Solomon my son whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. Did you hear the difference? God said, your son can build me a house. David said, my son will build a palace. And the finished product became known as the Temple of Solomon, and that's an illustration. And since then, since that time, people have been fixated with a physical structure instead of the presence of Almighty God. Since that time, people have worried more about the four walls than what makes the four walls holy and sacred and special and powerful, the presence of God Almighty. See, the Bible tells me that when God gave his original instruction to Moses, that when all was said and done, that his glory filled the room. And that's what we should all be longing for, for God's glory to fill our lives. We shouldn't be concerned so much about the structure, the four walls. Now, I don't blame David. I really don't. I don't blame David. In Psalm 27, David says that he longed to see and experience God in all of his beauty in the midst of his temple. And David was, he was, he had his heart set on building this, this temple. I don't blame him because David had a very special relationship with God. And all of us should have a, a relationship with God. All of us should strive to have a, a relationship with God so special. David had developed the habit of depending on God. And it was that flagrant trust which propelled him to the national spotlight when he stood on the battlefield across from Goliath. And just like that battlefield memorialized the place where David met Goliath, the house of the Lord memorialized for David the place where David met God. The house of the Lord was a place where David could find rest. The house of the Lord was a place where David could find strength. The house of the Lord was where David could find courage. He could find safety and shelter. The house of the Lord is where David could find peace. It was a place where David had determined he would spend all the days of his life. The Psalms tell us what kind of relationship David had with God. David knew God as the God of righteousness, it says in chapter 4. As the God of salvation in chapter 18. The God of glory in chapter 29. As the mighty one in chapter 45. As the king of all the earth in chapter 47. As God most high in chapter 57. As the almighty in chapter 68. As the Lord our maker in chapter 95. And as the God of heaven in chapter 136. So the house of the Lord is much more than just a physical structure. It's the presence of God. It's where we come face to face with the fullness of God. It's where we come face to face with the goodness of God. We come face to face with the mercy of God and with the grace of God. It's where we come face to face with the loving kindness of the everlasting God that is experienced in his presence like no place else. And when we gather together like this on earth to praise and glorify his name, what we're doing is taking part in a dress rehearsal for the celebration to end all celebrations on that great and faithful day when our eyes will finally behold the Redeemer of the world, the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Because ultimately, the eternal house of the Lord is in heaven, in his presence. You might ask, well, pastor, what's heaven like? I'm glad you asked. Heaven is the dwelling place of God himself. It's where Jesus is preparing a place for you and me. Heaven is a place where there is no need for light because Jesus himself 
is the light. And the Bible tells us of streets of gold and of crystal waters. It's a place where there will be no more suffering and no more pain. And there is room for everyone in the house of the Lord. Heaven is so marvelous that our words could never adequately describe it. And so the Bible gives us just enough information for us to know that we have an eternal hope. But not too much information so we stop looking both ways before we cross the street. But there's a particular passage in Revelation that tells me something important, something special about the house of the Lord in heaven. It's found in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. And the scripture says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There's room for everyone in the house of the Lord. All nations, all tribes, all people, all languages. That's why here at Bethlehem, we're taking steps to become even more intentional about looking like that heavenly model. We have over 50 different nations represented in our congregation And we want to do more to be an inclusive family rather than an exclusive club. Somebody say amen. Amen. We recognize that there are people who come here every week, week after week, whose first language is not English, but they love this church. They love their church. And you know what? This church, their church, loves them right back. Many of our attenders are Spanish-speaking. And we've had a Spanish ministry here for years. We even had Sunday services in Spanish for a while. But the truth is we felt like we were struggling to reach that demographic. And at the same time, we were failing to reach other demographics. So Pastor Steve and I prayed quite a bit about it and had many discussions. And we've determined that since Bethlehem is a multi ethnic church. We would boldly take the next step in this progression using Spanish ministry as the pilot group to launch multi-ethnic ministry. You can applaud at that. A multi-ethnic ministry consists of translation of the Sunday experience, language-specific Bible study at Grow You, language-specific one groups, and an open invitation to participate in our absolutely free ESL program. We're working on doing these things better and better. We also need to translate some of the things on our website and on our app, and I ask that you please be patient with us. And to our Spanish-speaking Bethlehem family, please also know that we're working on expanding translation to go beyond Sundays. For example, this week, this upcoming Wednesday, at night of worship and prayer, translation will be available. Now, currently, we are offering these things in Spanish. It's the pilot group. But there is another language that we've already identified that we're going to move forward with. And the next language is Creole so that we can bless all of our Haitian family. Because at Bethlehem, we speak to Haitians. Some of you got that. Now, we hope to have translation in place for Sundays at 10.30, starting in January 2018 with Bible study and one groups to follow. We need to be intentional about this. We need to be intentional about this. 
See, on April 17, 1960, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. went on Meet the Press and he stated the following. It is one of the tragedies of our nation, one of the shameful tragedies that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours, if not the most segregated hours in Christian America. And he emphasized Christian America. And even with a growing number of multi-ethnic churches like Bethlehem, I think that Dr. King's assertion remains valid today. And this troubles me because it is in direct contrast to what's revealed to John in Revelation. Now, some people say that when you get to heaven, that people are going to be surprised by some of the people that they see there. I respectfully disagree, and I'm going to tell you why. I think that, I think that if a person is surprised to see people in heaven, it's probably because that person is a cynic who is prone to judging other people. And since my Bible tells me that there's only one person qualified and entitled to judge, I don't expect such surprises in heaven. You might say, well, pastor, aren't you contradicting yourself? Because you keep saying that there's room for everyone in the house of the Lord. But no, I'm not. Because right here and right now, we all still have an opportunity to get right with God. We all still have an opportunity to stop judging other people. And we all still have an opportunity to start living for Jesus. Now, I do think that we'll be surprised by some of the people who are not in heaven. Some real religious people. Some, some title wearers, title holders, and people who hide hate within their hearts. Because the truth is that 57 years after Dr. King spoke those words, racism and hate still permeate American culture. And I wish it wasn't so. I wish that we didn't have to hear about, I wish we didn't have to talk about racism. I wish we didn't have to hear about police brutality. I wish that you and I had inherited a better world from our parents. And I wish that our children could inherit a better world from us. I wish we didn't have to see it on the news. And I wish that it had never been part of my life, but it has. So how does wishful thinking qualify me to talk about the multi-ethnic house of the Lord? How does wishful thinking qualify me to talk about how the throne of God is surrounded by a magnificent array of many colors? And the answer is simple. My wishful thinking is a lamentation of the current condition of our country. But I'm not preaching my wishful thinking. I'm preaching the word of God today. And the word of God, the Bible speaks very clearly about the presence of God. That every nation, every tribe, every people, every language are in the presence of God Almighty. That the house of the Lord is a place where all are welcome. That there is room for everyone in the house of the Lord. You know, in Psalm 23, that word house in Hebrew is bayith. And it means temple or household or family. And that's the desire of our Lord. That's God's heart. God wants to love us and to shelter us within his own heavenly household. But that same word, Bayith, is also used for prison when telling the stories of Joseph and Samson. So let me tell you, if you don't get along with a certain group of people here on earth, then dwelling in the house of the Lord forever would be a prison for you, and God's not going to do that to you. 
See, if you do some research, you're going to find that people have been terrorized for centuries in this country because of the color of their skin. And it seems like lately, a group of people have become emboldened to spew their hate and display their ignorance publicly. And some of them even say that God is on their side. Now, let me declare to you what the Bible says. The Bible says that God is love. And if you have no love, you have not known God. For God is love. So if that's you, if you insist on hate, if you insist on going the way you've been going and you don't get right with God, guess what? God will be on your side. He'll be on your backside kicking your butt straight to hell. And I got no problems telling you that. Because let me tell you what the Bible does not say, okay? The Bible does not say anywhere. You can check your Bibles. You can look it up. The Bible does not say. And God said, let us make some men in our image and we'll color code them so everyone knows who we're talking about. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. You see, God has placed his own seal upon each and every one of us. It is the image of God. It is what's called the Imago Dei. And in the March 1971 edition of Studia Biblica et Theologica, John Piper wrote a, Piper a paper titled The Image of God, An Approach from Biblical and Systematic Theology. And in that paper, John Piper concludes, The Imago Dei is that in man which constitutes him as he whom God loves. See, God has placed something in you and something in me. He's placed something in all of us that is a little bit of him. Something in us that differentiates us from the rest of the world. Something in us that differentiates us from the rest of creation. Something in us that makes us valuable enough to die for. Something in us that makes us important enough that Jesus would shed his blood. And it is the Imago Dei. You are the Imago Dei. I am the Imago Dei. Your neighbor is the Imago Dei. And the person who talks about you behind your back is the Imago Dei. Ouch. I don't want them to be the Imago Dei. So how dare you? How dare I? How can anyone dare to hate or reject the image of God? I don't understand it. How can someone plan to stand before the throne of God Almighty one day and say, Sorry, God. I just didn't think those people were worth your sacrifice. How do you do that? Maybe you say, Pastor, well, I don't like them because they don't like me. Well, that's stupid. Because that's the same thing they say about you. I love what Dr. King said, though. Dr. King said, I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. Maybe, maybe you just don't want to think about it. Uh, for a long time, I didn't want to think about it either, to be honest with you. I didn't want to think about it. I wished 
that the issues of racism and hatred were dead and buried. But in the cover story of the August 18th, 2017 issue of Christianity Today, titled Facing Our Legacy of Lynching, D.L. Mayfield writes the following, Buried sins cannot be repented of. Buried sins cannot be repented of. And that's all sin. Any sin that you want to pretend is not there, you can't repent of. So how do I get that sin to, to not be buried? How do I dig that up? With conversation. By being intentional about being in the life of someone and accepting someone in your life who does not look like you. It's changed my world. See, God determined that he wanted to make his dwelling among men. He came down to us so that we could begin to enjoy his presence here and now. And that's what the house of the Lord is all about. And there's room for everyone in the house of the Lord. But let me ask you, is there room for everyone in your heart? You might say, hey, pastor, we're already a multi-ethnic church. You're preaching to the choir. Speaking of which, the worship team can start making their way back to the platform. See, I, I think that we probably do this better than many. And maybe we do this better than most. But that's the wrong standard. God never told us to compare ourselves to the church across the street. He gave us the standard in Revelation chapter 7. In the presence of God, the eternal house of the Lord, where every nation, tribe, language, and and, and tongue and people are represented. And so when I look at that standard, it convicts me that we can do this better, that we can be more intentional about really doing life with people who look very different from ourselves. What does your one group look like? Maybe it's time for you to reach out and expand it. Have we asked ourselves the tough questions? Do we have any preconceived notions of people who are different from us? Do we feel anxious, or nervous, or just uncomfortable around people who are different than us? Let's be honest with ourselves. What is it that we see that makes us double check the locks on our car door when we're driving through a neighborhood? Let's be honest with ourselves. What is it that makes us clutch our pocketbook a little tighter? See, I read somewhere that James Earl Jones said that in order to prepare him for the racism that he would encounter, his grandmother taught him to be racist. And can I confess to you right now can I confess to you right now that in my culture, I'm a Puerto Rican. I'm glad you think that's funny. <laughs> but in my Latino culture, racism exists. In the context of my own family and growing up, I learned to hear racial comments and to accept them as just the way it is. Can I confess to you that I was raised in East New York in the projects and I thought that I understood the plight of racism because I live next door to people who look different from me. Because I live next door to black people and Spanish people. And, and I didn't realize that even though I was race adjacent 
I had not addressed the issues of racism, which brought generational curses to my family. I had not realized, I hadn't come to terms with the fact that yes, I'm Puerto Rican, but the color of my skin still open doors for me that, that don't open to everyone. Can I be that real? Can I be real enough to tell you that a lot of times, a lot of places I got hired and people didn't know I was Puerto Rican? Can I tell you that I once had a boss tell me after working there something like 18 months? He said, boy, I just found out. I thought you were spaghetti and meatballs. I found out you're rice and beans. <laughs> Can I tell you that? And that's a true story. And so we need to get into each other's lives. Because the truth is the world has no hope of overcoming racism if the church won't even try. It's the obligation of the church, it's the obligation of the Christian to address and confront racism. Because I want you to hear me. This quote is coming straight from me. Even in the context of sin and all that is evil and vile, racism stands apart because it is an assault on the image of God. But there's room for everyone in the house of the Lord. King David had a fascination with the house of the Lord. And he writes in Psalm 92, The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Do you want to flourish? Do you want to grow? Do you want to still bear fruit even long after you should? You want your life to declare God's righteousness? Then be planted in the house of the Lord. Be planted in God's presence. Be like David and make God's presence a non-negotiable for your life. And our summer in the Psalms ends with that challenge. Dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Seek out his presence. Now the worship team is going to lead us in a worship song. As the ushers come forward, they're going to distribute the communion elements. And we're going to do communion a little bit different. So I want you to just stay where you are. Hold on to your communion. Don't open it until I give you some further instructions. But I want you to contemplate this. There's room for everyone in the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord is a multi-ethnic house. You may begin distributing. Oh, see how great how great is our God, yeah. how great, how great is our God, sing with me, how great is our God, and all see how And 
trembles at his voice, trembles at his voice. See how great, how great is our God. Today, we're celebrating communion, the Lord's Supper. And we usually take this moment to contemplate what the Lord has done for us. That He took our place and He took our punishment on the cross so that we could have eternal life. But as you contemplate this, I also would like to urge you to contemplate that Jesus didn't only die for you. That Jesus died for whosoever believes in him, no matter what they look like. That he died for people who are different than you and that he belongs to us all. And so today, I'd like to do something different. If you're willing to celebrate what Jesus did for someone else today and get beyond yourself and recognize that that price was paid for people who don't look like me, then I want to invite you to the Lord's table. And I want to ask you to be on your feet. If you are willing to stand alongside me as a sign of unity and a covenant to stand against racism, then those of you who are in the main sanctuary, I'm going to ask you to come and let's take communion together right here. And if you're in the balcony, I'm going to ask you to be on your feet and go stand with someone. Don't take communion by yourself today. Take communion with someone else. And if you're in the cafe, I'm going to ask you to go find someone. Take communion with someone else. Let's celebrate what God has done. And as you come forward, the worship team will sing one more time. Worship your name, oh Lord. Hallelujah. Yeah. Oh. Hallelujah. See how great, how great is our God. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when we had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This represents the body of Jesus Christ that was broken for me and was broken for Mark and was broken for so many of us that look different from each other. The body that, that took the punishment for all of us. That's what we're commemorating here today. And if you're willing to do that, then let us partake together. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This cup represents the blood of Jesus, the precious and perfect lamb, the blood that is powerful to wash away all of my sins, the blood that is powerful to wipe away all of humanity's sin, the blood that is stronger than racism. And if you will celebrate that with me today, let us partake together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the body and we thank you for the blood. We thank you that you took our place on the cross. We thank you that you took our punishment, the punishment of all humanity, so that all humanity, everyone marked and stamped with the Imago Dei can come to you, can be restored and can be saved. Lord, help us to love your presence, the house of God, not the structure, but the presence of God Almighty that we would insist on nothing short of the image of God in all that we do. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Be blessed. Love someone different than you and enjoy your week. God bless.